it's sometimes it's the only way to give people a wake-up call to make that happen. And unfortunately, there's still some folks who just have their head far up somewhere else and aren't wanting to figure out a game plan. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Colin Smith. Colin is a successful real estate investor and a property manager, and today we're going through some of his principles, strategies, business systems around managing long-term rentals. Either These are both his long-term rentals and his clients' long-term rentals, and we walk through it in terms of the lifetime of a lease. Colin teaches a professional continuing education course on this topic. We really tried to boil it down to about a 30-minute discussion, going through some principles, pitfalls, and mistakes that particularly mom-and-pop single owners make when self-managing their properties. I highly recommend hiring third-party property managers. Of course, you have to vet the people that you hire, make sure that their businesses and procedures are all up to snuff, all quality, legal, all that great kind of thing, which we talk about today. But as far as self-managing your rentals, focus on value rather than cost. I find that so many small mom and pop property owners lean toward self-managing their rentals because they value their own time at $0 per hour and they think they're saving so much, quote unquote, by not hiring a property manager. But what you get with a property manager is significant value. They take your time out of the equation. They have policies, procedures, people who will help you manage your properties, get revenue coming in the door, manage your expenses, all that kind of thing. They know the laws in your area all of these critical aspects to owning rental real estate and enjoying passive cash flow. And that's really the key here is generating passive cash flow and property managers can help you do that. And today we're digging into, again, principles around managing long-term rentals. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. And today I have invested in, acquired, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million of multifamily and self-storage acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. If you're hearing my voice right now, that means you're not listening to us on YouTube. You should definitely come check out our YouTube channel. We post the videos and bonus content from the podcast on the YouTube channel and you might enjoy it. Don't forget to subscribe and hit the thumbs up button when you get there. Once again, our guest today is Colin Smith, and we're digging into principles around managing long-term rentals. Without any further ado, here we go. Colin, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to talk about managing long-term rentals. But before we dive into it, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, what you invest in, what you do, all that great stuff? Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me, Taylor. 
So to give you a little bit of background, I actually graduated with an engineering degree back in 2012. That for about four years kind of hated every second of it. But, <laughs> you know, partway through that journey, ended up, you know, buying a house and renting individual rooms out, did the whole house hacking approach. And one of the guys that came to live with me kind of got me hooked on real estate. I already had a little bit of an interest in real estate with just my family's always owned rentals. I've been helping do rental turnovers for as long as I can remember. So I had some experience, but he was really doing the flip side or the fix and flip side. And so that kind of intrigued me a little more. Started trying to do flips very unsuccessfully. Everything I was trying to do was, you know, I'd get a, get a quote from a roofer. They tell me it's going to take 10 grand. I put in 20. Track is be 3,500. I put in seven. Just just to try and buffer all my numbers. And so I never actually bought anything, but realized, you know, I, I can definitely help other people find investment properties. So I ended up getting my real estate license in 2014. Started helping other people flip properties by just sort of bird dogging for them, looking for deals in the MLS, running numbers, and then helping them on the resale side after the flip was done. And then in 2016, launched my company where we started doing property management on, as well as that. So my niche has always been working with investors, you know, started with just the one rental property I personally had back in 2016. And we've been growing and always have about 350 to 400 occupied doors at any given time with a lot of turnovers and properties on the market ready to go. So I've been right. growing it. We've got a team of about 13 employees are all in that property management division. Our, you know, it's we're kind of a fewer properties per head count, but our goal is to offer a really high level of service, and it kind of integrates with everything else we do for for the sales side, as well as on my personal investing side. I've got about fifty three doors, mostly all residential, about half of which is actually vacant because they're in some stage of a long term major renovation. So taking properties, gutting them down to the studs. Some of those is part of a mobile home park that we're redoing all the infrastructure, underground infrastructure in, and it's taking just a long, long time to get through all those hoops to go from start to finish. So that's kind of a highlight of my experience so far. I love it. Well, that is quite the transformation and growth story. And I'm not sure if you hit on, I'm not sure if you hit on it specifically, but what markets do you operate in just for our listeners? Yeah, so we're our, our main market is a Colorado Springs metro area, and we've just grown into Pueblo as well. So we're kind of managing in both those markets in terms of property management side. Our rule of thumb is we don't manage more than about 30-minute drive from our office or also our future office because we've got one in construction right now, just to make sure that we can offer everybody a good level of you know, customer service. And property management can have a lot of drive time. So that, that windshield time can really eat into some of our operations. So we do limit just how far we go in terms of our operations. Good, good. That's smart. And today I'm excited to dig into what you might, some might consider kind of the the unglamorous side of real estate investing, which is actually managing our deals. But little did you know, managing your deals is how you actually make money and make cash flows is by properly managing your rentals. And really with the focus of understanding and digging into areas where folks who self-manage tend to mis make mistakes and get things wrong. And I'm sure you're always coming in behind folks who were self-managing and then you're coming in to kind of fix some of their mistakes. But I'd love to start by diving into procedures and really building the business side of things to make sure it runs like a, a well-oiled machine as you're managing long-term rentals. Yeah. So, and the easiest way to kind of explain that is going, kind of going through the 
life cycle of a lease. So everything from, let's say you just got a brand new single family home, it's vacant, it's time to place tenants. So photos go a long way. It's amazing how many properties we see that just have one or two photos, don't have any photos of the inside, they're just exterior photos or vice versa, just have interior photos, no exterior. And we really, we, we never like to see photos that's full of all the current occupants' possessions. So we want to see properties that are empty, vague. People aren't trying to envision what their furniture is going to look like on top of other people's furniture. So we'll go in there, get photos. We also are big fans of the 3D Matterport virtual tours. So we'll go in there and make a 3D virtual tour of every single rental listing we do. Colorado Springs in particular, we've got five military installations. So we've got a lot of military folks coming and going many of whom don't get an opportunity always to come see in person some of the rental property that we have to offer, but allowing them to walk the property virtually gives them the opportunity to feel like they've been there and, you know, kind of build that trust so they know what they're moving into. And it gives them the benefit that they can see, you know, the master bedrooms directly above the kitchen, which is directly above the utility room. So they can kind of see a dollhouse view, which goes a long ways, not just for them, for people out of state moving here, but even folks locally just trying to get a feel for the property. Also helps tremendously with those 3D virtual tours because when we get into a dispute after a tenant moves out uh, over security deposit dispositions, that is the ultimate move-in condition form, if you will. You know, photos are great, videos are better, but you just can't beat a 3D virtual tour where it shows all the floors, ceilings, windows, walls, et cetera. So they just help tremendously be able to show before and after in terms of what the condition was when they first moved in. So you're doing that every single time you have a new listing. It's not a new rental available. It's not that we have one scan for 123 Main Street, and that's just the one we use every time it comes vacant. It's you're doing a new scan every time it comes vacant so that you have that record for security. So, so we're not doing it every time it comes vacant. What, yeah. oh, okay. You know, we also have our photos. We're also creating inspection reports that usually we aim for about anywhere from 50 to a couple hundred photos. So we really just try to load up the inspections with photos as well. We will go back and get a new virtual tour anytime we're doing all new flooring, all new paint, you know, any kitchen or bathroom remodels. Just so we're, we're kind of showing the property in its best possible light when we're back on the market. The other reason they really help is that let's say let's say our tenant signs a 12-month lease and they happen to be vacating in that 12 months or whenever it is in the future. As soon as we know they're vacating, we will start marketing that property for rent again using that same 3D virtual tour, allow people to walk the home virtually, but not actually go walk it with all the tenants, you know, boxes and junk all over the place. And we actually are able to secure a lot of leases before the previous tenants have even moved out, just because people, again, have kind of built that trust with us and the property, knowing what it looks like before they move in. So it's important that we okay, still restore gotcha. to that condition. But And we always have usually a 10 business day lag time between the two to give us time to get all that done. Okay. Yeah. Doing it every time would be very labor intensive and probably pretty expensive. So, okay. Pushing forward as you have someone interested in a property they want to apply. Heck, maybe you have a few people applying for the same vacancy. How do you handle analyzing them, getting a lease signed, all that process? So the screen part's extremely important. You know, the fair housing, if there's any way to get shut down yes. real quick, that's to violate fair housing. So we won't go too far in the weeds there. Highly recommend having property management on board 
not just for the placing and screening tenants, but for the whole process. But yeah, fair housing is just one place where I do see people get in trouble. And I've seen lawsuits where they can end up in the six-figure mark. And that's enough to lose your entire property over it. So screening goes a long way. It's important that we that we treat everybody equally. So the idea of fair housing is as fair for everybody. We have protected classes that you cannot discriminate against, but that doesn't change the fact that we still need to treat everybody equally. So for if you're, I'm going to use a light language here, if you're just kind of a butthole to the property managers, <laughs> buttholes are not a protected class. So we can legally discriminate against them. But we got to treat everybody equally. So, you know, if one person's being a jerk and another person's being a jerk, we, we got to disqualify both of them. So it's important that whatever screening criteria we put out there, it's the same criteria for everybody. So, for example, when it comes to rental income, we're always looking for 3x their, in, their gross income as a household compared to the monthly rental rate. That means that if there are so much as, you know, five, ten dollars short on our three X number, then we can't qualify them. There's been a few times where we just go and talk to landlord and say, Hey, can we can we drop the rent? You know, a few bucks. That that gets them to the three X number just because the rental rate's now less, but we're there's still three X. We're not changing that three X number. We're looking for, you know, doing background checks, eviction checks. So every, you know, different municipalities, different states have different regulations. We can only go back seven years on any rental history. So if they have an eviction on their record from eight years ago, we might see it, but we got to pretend like we never did. And so it cannot even come into as a factor when we're deciding whether they're, you know, a green light or a red light for being processed as a tenant. So they want us to treat it every as much as we can black and white. There's some gray area still in there, especially when it comes to background checks. It can be really hard to get full records and details because we can only take into account convictions. We're not able to take into account charges because they, they were never, just because they're charged doesn't mean they're convicted. Could have been a false charge or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's only a taste of what we're looking at. And certainly landlord references are important. Actually calling employers goes a long ways. Every once in a while, we get somebody who says they work for XYZ engineering company and they tell us exactly how much we make. And we call the company and they say, who? We've never heard of such a person. <laughs> so that's just kind of an immediate disqualifier right there. We just go ahead and send them the um, adverse action letter and says, no, sorry, we're not even going to consider you further at this point in time. Okay. So I just want to interject and ask a, a question. So you've got your property manager, right? You've got owners, property owners who you work for, investors who you work for. What, in your opinion, is the appropriate level, the optimal level of involvement that your owners should have at this stage? Should they be looking over your shoulder at all these applicants? Should they just wait for you to find somebody who is well qualified? What do you, what do you think is really the best of all the, the possibilities as far as them? Being so that's right? actually a really great question. So uh, we actually don't give any information to our owners until they move in at which point in time we'll give them minimal information. So here's what was going on. We have, and this is a Colorado thing where we got to specify what we're screening people are. We have to put it out there for the world to see before they apply. And we need to give them, you know, a thumbs up or thumbs down based on that specific criteria. What was happening is when we shared some of this information with the owners previously, is they would say, we don't, we don't want those people in there. And we tell them, well, mm -hmm. we can't say no to them because of that, because either they're, it's a protected class 
we didn't list it as a reason to reject them, et cetera. And the conversation would, would sometimes turn to, well, if you place them, we're going to fire you. And which really means, well, we're going to have to fire you because it's either, you know, we're violating fair housing or we're firing you as a client and we're not interested in losing our entire business over, you know, one client who just has, you know, whatever reasoning they have in their head for why they don't want that person in there. So we actually purposely don't share any information with their owners because that was surprisingly happening to us more often than we wish to. So we found it was better just not to share share all the information with them until we actually had an approved tenant, at which point in time we'd love to know, hey, great news. We've got a lease signed. You know, we got them for the full market rental rate. They're moving in on X date. And here's what you need to know. And here's a copy of the lease. So, and that's actually been okay, very then, successful. Every once in a while, I get a little bit of pushback, but not not very much. That makes a lot of sense. And, and yeah, on the fair housing front, it's not something that's discussed, I think, often enough on investing podcasts like this one and others, but a lot of mom and pops in particular have little to no understanding of fair housing. And I, I have some inside knowledge of that, but we don't need to get into that now. But good to protect yourself and understand the laws and also protect your your property. Yeah. So pushing forward, you have, let's say, you you have somebody signed for a property, they're, they're in, and if they're paying the rent on time, then no problem, you know, whatever. But let's say you have somebody who's not paying on time. Now, this is going to, I'm sure, deal with Colorado-specific state laws regarding evictions, but what are your eviction procedures and, and policies, at least at a high sure, level? Sure, absolutely. So the eviction process here in Colorado takes a while. We also offer just a full eviction service. So for you know, mom, pause, or you know, we actually get a lot of family, evicting family calling us. It's kind of surprising. You, you, it's probably about half of the people who contact us for just for the eviction service is, is family on family. Um, but in terms of our property management side, we do not wait along. The, pro- the eviction process can take easily 50, 60 days from when we start the process to when we finish, and that's showing up with the sheriff. Certainly, we'll try to implement other strategies, try and get them out sooner. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And so that's kind of worst case scenario. So how that process looks, and we'll use the simple example of non-payment rent. So Colorado also made some pretty big changes in the fall of 2020. Where before we could, we didn't have a required wait period in terms of when we could post a late notice or charge late rent. Now we have to wait a full seven business day period before we can post a notice. So what that means is rent is due on the first. You have to give them the entire entire day of the first. We then have to give them seven full 24 hours, which means that we can't post our first notice until the ninth. They also extended our minimum notice day to a 10 day demand. So on the 9th, we're going around posting 10-day demands, and I've got two field operators where they've got a printer built in the back of their car, and they're just driving all over town, posting all these things all in a day. So we've got a pretty efficient process to make sure we get everybody knocked out. And and, and we'll we'll post just for everything from, you know, they, they paid the rent, but they didn't pay their utility bill, only because they've got another full 10 days to communicate with us, to work with us, to make sure they're coming up with a game plan. Occupants who are communicative and and working with us and following through on what they say they're going to do, we may wait to actually file with the courts. So the earliest we can file with the courts is after that 10 days expires. So really we're looking at the 20th at that point in time. And so if they're working with us, then we don't necessarily want to go file with courts right away. 
But if they're totally non-responsive, then it's just, we just have to. It's sometimes it's the only way to give people a wake-up call to make that happen. And unfortunately, there's still some folks who just have their head far up somewhere else and aren't, you know, aren't, aren't wanting to figure out a game plan. And we'll try and connect them with, you know, places that help. So like uh, Catholic Charities, there's a few other local resources and that will help people that are in a financial pinch to kind of make a few rental payments. So for those who really need it, we'll try and get them resources so they were not going down that road. But again, the people that are non-communicative, we just, we don't, they kind of force us into a position, just keep everything moving forward. For if they're willing to come in and pay off all, pay the rent, pay the late fees, pay all of our fees that have been incurred by the owner, like the court fees, the attorney fees, we, we can cancel that eviction at any point in time. In fact, we can cancel that eviction, you know, up until the second the sheriff starts knocking on the door. So if they're willing to make it happen, and, and we've actually had it happen where they, they managed to get all the money put together and managed to cancel their eviction the day before the sheriff was supposed to show up. So it's a, it's a very long process, but we definitely don't wait, wait around unless they're, you know, making good progress and actually getting money deposited when they say they are with a pretty reasonable payment plan. We, we really like to see the rent come in that's due that month by the end of the month. So if it's if it's December 1st, we wanna see all the rent by December 31st and come January, they really need to start getting a little bit closer to getting paid on time. Again, sometimes people lose their job. Sometimes they get an accident, have a health condition. And, and so it can kind of, that can go on for four or five, six months. When it comes time for the lease renewal, that's all taken into consideration. And as a conversation with the owner of saying, hey, here's what's been going on. Owners will have already been knowing because a lot of, you know, their payments to them aren't necessarily coming in on time. But it's all part of that conversation of, do we want to offer them another 12-month lease? Do we have a good gut feeling they're going to start getting more caught up? Or is the situation just slipping a little more out of control every day? So, yeah. Okay. Definitely don't want to wait. We've seen too many people that wait four or five months and let that rent ledger balance really accrue to be some incredible numbers. And I mean, it's amazing how many how much money is left on the table for just taking too long to act. So I think the the underlying principle here really is that by hiring a property manager, which I'm a big proponent of, and I make no secret of that, is is you have policies, procedures, resources, and all these assets involved in the business that you know how the eviction laws work, which I'm certain there are mom and pops that did not catch that change in the laws that you mentioned out in Colorado. You also have written procedures on, okay, here's when we post you know, the, the due notice and all those kinds of things. You know exactly when this is going to happen, but mom and pops, kind of like you said, are going to let that rent accrue and just let the, the late rent carry forward for months and months and months. So this is the I think the value that you get when you hire a property manager to help run your properties. Yeah. I mean, we've got one guy who's come to us. That he's got a portfolio of three homes and a $22,000 ledger balance on the three homes. Wow. And, you know, the, the, he, he says they're his friends and that he's good. You know, they're, they're all his good buddies and they're all promising to pay. But how, how you get to, you know, months and months and months of just being string, strung along like that is just, it's kind of heartbreaking to see that people just get so taken advantage like that. But again, I, I agree with you. Property management is something that I always highly recommend. There are so many 
rules and regulations and the state laws are often not in the favor of the landlord. Usually they're in the favor of the tenant. So we see a lot of people who have to restart their eviction process after they've already started two or three weeks in because they messed up their paperwork or they messed up one small step or filed a day too early or something along those lines. Wow. So what, in in your opinion, do the best investors say the most effective investors? I had I, I'm, I have a hard time putting a particular like value judgment, just best in general investors who you work with, your clients, the most uh, successful ones, if you will. What what habits do they have? How do they interact with you in a way that leads them to be successful? Is or is that even a reasonable question? Did they just buy great deals and the deals are working out because of the property and the position, the, the condition that it's in. What do you think about that? So one, one key factor I would say is they, they really try to t- take care of their tenant. So when we go to lease a property, they're authorizing us to do better repairs, to not l- let things slide, to not just, you know, kind of ignore problems. They're la- letting us re- replace the flooring when we should, where we've got some owners who really want to push one more tenant through it. When maintenance comes up, you know, our, our, quite honestly, our best landlords will tell us, hey, you know, we we know you in our property management agreement, we have a $250, you know, authorized, automatic authorization fee above 250. We need to get permission. Our best landlord to say, hey, if it's anything up to a water heater, just go get it done, which, you know, is right now, let's just say ballpark $1,500 by the time you get the plumber and permits and all the work. But you know, and they just want to make sure their tenants have hot water. I mean, if a water heater goes out, there's often not a whole lot that can be done. You know, if a garbage disposal breaks, that can be a real headache for some tenants not really being able to utilize their kitchen sink like they want to. And so just letting us get in there, go either, you know, get it unstuck or replace it, whatever it might be. We've seen, the, you know, garbage disposals are kind of one of those things that people burn through, but people also love them. So they're great to have. And just, you know, other maintenance issues in general, just making sure that it gets done quickly, that it's done to the satisfaction of the tenant. There, There's definitely exceptions to all this. You know, we've got tenants who ask for, you know, brand new sliding doors where existing one is just, it, it's fine. It, it works. It's maybe not as smooth as anyone w- wanted it to be, but it is what it is. And it doesn't really justify a new sliding glass door that might be a thousand bucks. Like that, <laughs> That's just going to have to wait. You know, we've got one that immediately comes to mind as we keep having a tenant that is complaining that they're, one of the coils on their or their their oven range, their coil tops get too hot. I, I still don't understand why they're even complaining because it's, it's the whole point of oven is to heat things up. But they keep saying it's <laughs> it just can't go low. So you know we're not going to send out an appliance tech to go try and repair oven that is doing what it should be doing. So so there's balance in it all. One thing that I really see a lot of small mom pop landlords get themselves trouble into is letting their tenants do the work. I would never in a million years recommend that they ever let their tenants do work, especially if it's work in lieu of only one party ever wins in that situation. And it's never the landlord. The work is never (laughs) done quite right. You know, we've even had had owners tell us about how their tenant was a plumber and they messed up the plumbing and, you know, ended up flooding a basement. You know, others will just be like general handyman. They're a handyman for the living. And yet, you know, they don't, they don't do a very good job when it's the property that they live in because ultimately they're not really getting paid for it. They're just agreeing to get less rent. And as long as it sort of gets done, if it gets done, they're hoping to get their essentially their reward for just saying yes. So we never use tenants for work. It's just 
is not a good mix. That makes a lot of sense. And and yeah, I've seen some folks make that mistake and plenty of posts on the Bigger Pockets forum being like, you know, I let my tenant do a bunch of work for free rent. And what do you know? It blew up. So great. Thanks for running us through all of that. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Colin, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So best one I'd probably say is I've got a little mobile home park near downtown Colorado Springs. Still actually working on it. We're working on redoing all the underground electric at the moment. And Colorado Springs Utilities, it's about a year-long wait to get a transformer. So I need two of them. So that that whole project's been put on hold. We're still working off the old electric, but I can't add any new homes. But the whole deal itself, you know, it took, we had to subdivide the property from other commercial businesses that we took care of on behalf of the current or previous owner, but he was willing to give us a really great deal on it. And I just know that's going to be probably one of my best long-term holds when it's all done. So I'll look forward to getting that transformer in here soon. But until then, it's still, still a little vacant. Wow. Wow. That must be an expensive project to do all that underground electrical. Wow. Great. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So the worst one was I I bought a little double wide out in this little town called Callahan. It's about an hour drive to our east. Did not realize at the time, this was real early on, still, still learning a lot. And come to find out if a modular home or manufactured home has ever been moved from the original location it was, was placed at, you can no longer get financing for it, traditional financing. Mm. And so we had, all, we had bought this property to flip it. It was in pretty rough condition, got a good deal on it. We kind of did a lot of the demo work when we discovered that it wasn't going to be financed when we go to resell it. So it was a big learning curve, realizing, oh, crap, what did we just buy? And we ended up selling it just as is kind of stopped all construction and handing off to another investor who's going to finish the rehab and just keep it as a rental who's more local out there. So big learning curve. I know, you know, since then, I've heard there's some ways to get those tags back on the modular. But at the time, it was just sort of, a, oops, we made a big mistake. We're going to take our losses and run and not fall into that sucking or lost cash fallacy or whatever that saying is. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I had never, never heard that before. So that is a a difficult one to, to step in. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? So just going for it. And I think it's probably something that myself and probably a lot of other guests have all said is you just just got to go for it. Just got to try. You know, trying and failing is so much better than trying and wondering, or I should really say not trying and wondering. You know, most of my success always had probably twice as much failure somewhere along the lines, but that's usually not what people are talking about. It's usually what I'm talking about because I'm always bummed it didn't work out the way. <laughs> but, you know, from where I am 10 years ago to where I am today, it's all 
it, it was all the failure in between the two that got me to where I am. I love that. So important. The best learning experiences are unfortunately the ones that look like failures when they're happening, but it's just yep. the the reality. Colin, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all of these lessons. And for the listeners out there, we had a little bit of technology trouble getting this interview put together, and I appreciate you sticking with it and you know being persistent to get through our technology issues. And if folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to, maybe learn about your services out there in Colorado or anything like that, where can they, they track you down? Yeah, so I'm just going to throw our website out there, which is just www.solidrockre.com. And they can either just call our main line and get the call forwarded on to me, or we've got some user forms in there where they can sign up for more information. So solidrockre.com be the place to go. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.